Hi, I'm Lynn Kitchens. I'm so glad to be with you today, looking back in the book of John. And don't you love learning more about the wonders of Jesus? When my faith is weak, I go back to the Gospels and marvel at who Jesus is, just to strengthen my faith again. You know, before we receive Christ in our hearts, we don't understand who he is. We're blind to the truths of Jesus because we were born blind, blind to the truths of God, our creator, blind to the truths of God, our savior. When Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, sin came into the world. We inherited that sin. And if our God didn't love us so much, we would just stay blind the rest of our lives. But he does love us and offers to bring us out of the darkness and into the light of his grace. Look at Romans on your verse sheet. Romans 5, the three gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And Romans 3 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified through grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Because of God's grace in our lives and the faith that we've placed in Jesus, we can say, praise God, we are blind no more. You know, many years ago, the church had a musical artist come here to sing. And he was blind and he sang songs about Jesus and how much he loved him. And you could see it on his face. And pretty soon we all forgot that he was blind because he really wasn't. He knew the truth. He knew Jesus. And he's saying, Lord, I'm yours. I'll follow you. You lead the way. Today we're going to meet many people who are in the darkness. They're blind because they think that they can see. And I want us to realize that these two chapters are really love stories. I don't think when we first read them, we would look at them that way, but they are. They are stories about Jesus reaching out, wanting to bring his light into the dark hearts of those who are lost. In these stories, we see Jesus is loving the world so much. Jesus is loving the Jews so much. Jesus loves you and I so much. You remember the Jews have been celebrating the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And during this festival, four giant lamps would have been lit up in the women's court. They were lit for joy and celebration. There would have been a lot of dancing and singing and music and the people would be holding these bright torches. All the light in the room was to remind the Jews that God led them with light in the darkness as they traveled in the wilderness. So with this celebration on their minds, Jesus, who is now with them, decides to make his second I am statement. So picture him in the temple area. He is seated like a teacher or a rabbi would teach in that position. There were crowds seated around him. There would have been people standing close to him. And then he shocks them with this claim. Look in John 8, 
verse 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, I bet when Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, some of those people sitting would have jumped to their feet. You know, imagine coming to a Bible study at the church and the teacher all of a sudden saying, hey, by the way, I want you guys to know I'm the light of the world. I think we would have jumped on our feet. I think we would have run out the door. Jesus makes this incredible statement and he makes some important truths when he says it. We learn from his comment here that the world is in darkness. Darkness is a symbol of evil and ignorance and sin. But we also learn that Jesus is the antidote. Those who follow him step out of darkness and into the light. Isaiah prophesied that when the Messiah, Jesus Christ, enters the world, light would come with him. Look on your verse sheet, Isaiah 9-2. He said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And light is the symbol in the Bible. It's the symbol of God and his holiness. So look at 1 John 1-5. It says, this is the message we heard from Jesus and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So when Jesus called himself the light of the world, he was making a true testimony of his deity. And as the light of the world, he would both expose sin and give sight. So the rest of chapter 8 is going to be about Jesus exposing sin. Chapter 9 about how as the light he also gives sight. But first, I want us to imagine in great concern and compassion as Jesus sits and looks at the crowd after he makes this comment, he is filled with concern. He is filled with compassion. He hurts for their salvation. They are like the burned out wicks from the feast that they just had, from the Feast of Tabernacles and the room where all the lamps were lit. The wicks from those lamps were made from the scraps of old, worn-out priest's clothing. And I think it can also remind us the Jews were worn out. The nation was worn out. They had replaced God's purposes for them with their own legalistic ones, and they had become blind. Jesus offered the crowd the gift of being delivered from this darkness, if they chose to follow him, they would leave the dark realm of evil and ignorance and have true life. Psalm 36 tells us, for with you is the fountain of life. Your light, in your light do we see light. Jesus also says in these verses, when you are a true follower, you will have the light. That means we will have Jesus. He will live within us. We will belong to him and we will have his eyes. And so we will see everything around us differently and in truth. 
You know, uh, there's an old song the Beatles sang. I love this song. It's called Till There Was You. And it's about the change in people when they love each other. But I often think of it about when we love Christ. It really fits well here. It could be about the change in us when the light of life lives inside of us. The words say there were bells on a hill. I never heard them ringing till there was you. There were birds in the sky. I never saw them winging till there was you. There was love, God's love all around. But I never heard it singing. I never heard it at all till there was you. All of life takes on new meanings when the creator of life is living within us. And Jesus also tells the people that his followers will have the light of life, the full life that he meant for us to have. John 10, 10, 10, the abundant life is what God has planned for us. And in that verse, the word abundant means exceeding expectations. More than we can imagine. Everything we need to give us divine satisfaction and joy in our life. Ephesians 3.20 says this, Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power working within us, the life within us. What an offer. Jesus is looking at this crowd saying, I want to give you light. I want to give you life. I want to give you abundance. And they are going to reject this invitation. You know, if it's ever a little warm outside, for some reason, wasps just take over our house. They fly around our house. They get in our house. We basically just run around our house trying not to get stung. In fact, all this freezing temperatures we've just had, <clears throat> the day after it stopped, there were some wasps in our house. While I wrote this message, there was a wasp I was trying to get away from in the kitchen. Once my husband was actually stung right here on his forehead, and his forehead puffed up and got all red. And so I just started to call him B-Brain. And um, I thought that was really funny, but Ted did not. When you look at the Pharisees in the rest of chapter 8, they just remind me of these wasps. They remind me how they swarm around Christ just stinging, irritating, attacking. Listen to some of the comments they're going to make while Jesus is trying to teach them. Where are your witnesses? Your testimony isn't true. Where's your father? Who are you? You have a demon. Who do you think you are? Do you think you're better than Abraham? First, they're going to challenge this claim that Jesus just made about being the light of the world. That, hey, where are your witnesses? You can't bear witness about yourself. But Jesus replies that his testimony is true because of these witnesses. He knows his destiny. And he knows that he and his father bear witness to him. Regarding his destiny, he tells the Pharisees, I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. I know why I'm here, but you don't. You don't know any of those things, and so you can't judge me correctly. You're going to judge me in a way that's flawed. 
that's superficial. That's limited. Jesus also tells them that unlike them, his purpose on earth wasn't about legalistically judging people. Everything he came to save was because of his love. Look at John 3, 17. It says, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And you'll read later in verse 9, even though he did not come to judge, but to save, judgment is just a result and a consequence of the people that reject his invitation of salvation. When he does judge in the future, he says, I will do that with my father who sent me. And then Jesus would remind them that their law said they needed two witnesses for a testimony to be true. And Jesus will tell them, I have those witnesses. Jesus and my Father who sent me bear witness to the testimonies of Christ. Remember at Jesus' baptism, when the skies lit up and heaven's voice came down, it was the voice of God and he said, this is my beloved son. With him I'm well pleased. That was a witness to the world of who Jesus really was. But the wasps continue to circle Jesus. Look at 8, 19. So they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus said, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury. Let's go up to verse 21. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me. You will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I'm going, you can't come. He said to them, you are from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. When they say, where's your father? Of course, they were talking about Jesus' earthly father. If they had really known Christ, they would have known who his father was. Colossians 1.15 tells us Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Remember that time Jesus was walking with his disciples and Philip said to him, look, Jesus, if you just would show us a father, that, that would be enough proof for us. And Jesus stops and looks at Philip and says, Philip, how long have I been with you and you still don't know who I am? If you've seen me, you have seen the father. Jesus wants the Jews to know him, so he gives them a dire warning. Just as Jesus' time on earth was short, so would the opportunity for the Jews to trust in him be short. Soon Jesus would go back to his father. They couldn't follow him there. That's why he's telling them, if you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. The singular sin that leads to eternal separation from God is the one of rejecting the one God has sent to offer salvation. He has an explanation of what he's trying to tell them. If the Jews rejected the revelation of God that he bore, they would miss that hope for salvation. Verse 24 tells us, he says, you have to believe that I am he. In the Greek, that would just read that I am. 
And we know that this is a name for God from the book of Exodus. When he says it there, they don't quite understand what he's trying to say. Here's what he's trying to say. He was claiming full deity for himself. This is what they must believe for salvation. And their biting answer to Jesus is, so who are you? Okay, they were being willfully blind here because they knew the answer to that question. Jesus had demonstrated by his miracles and his teachings, and the Pharisees would have known that. They would have known every one of his miracles. In Capernaum, healing the official's son from afar. In Jerusalem, bringing life into the legs of an invalid by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. They would have heard for sure about Jesus feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. And the Jews, Jesus is saying, will eventually come face to face with what they chose not to see. Look at verse 28. Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, you'll know I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many came to believe in him. So the Son of Man being lifted up is referring to his crucifixion on the cross. The cross would reveal who Jesus really was and would also reveal that the one that they put on the cross was the Savior of the world, and he came to save them. That's exactly what happened after Jesus ascended to his Father. In the book of Acts, you can read this on your verse sheet. This is after Jesus ascended and the Jews are all gathered, thousands of them, and Peter stands up and says this to the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then Peter looks at them and says, let all the house of Israel know for certain God has made this man, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When the people heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. And they looked at Peter and the apostles and said, what shall we do? So those who received his word were baptized that day. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls to the kingdom of God. At this point in Jesus' discourse, some seem to believe in Jesus' words. And so now Jesus is going to let them know what a true disciple really looks like. And he gives an incredible promise for all people who really and truly belong to him. Let's look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. 
we'll see from the rest of this chapter 8 that most of these people really don't become his disciples. They paid attention to Jesus' words, but they would not continue in his words. The promise Jesus makes is one who does abide in God's word knows truth and will be freed from the bondage of sin. And the idea that they were not free didn't go over very well with the Jews. And so Jesus has a severe list. It's where the light of the world exposes the spiritual realities of the Jews. And here's what he's going to let them know, that first they were slaves to sin. Secondly, their father was the devil. Thirdly, they didn't know God at all. First on the list, the Jews were slaves to sin. The wasps are circling around Jesus, and they begin to claim a false freedom. Look at verse 33. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say we'll become free? And Christ said, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Here's the interesting thing. Israel was not free. They were under the power of Rome. And in the past, they were enslaved by the Babylonians, by the Egyptians, by the Assyrians. Also, these people may have been physical descendants of Abraham, but because they had no faith in his promises, they were not spiritual descendants of Abraham. They were rejecting the only one who could remove their sins. So Jesus lets them know that that means you're a slave to sin. That means you're still sinners. Jesus gives an example of the house and the son and the slave. In that example, Jesus is the son who remains in the house. That's God's house. And he alone can free the slaves from sin so they can also become children of God in God's house. Next on the list, Jesus lets them know that the Jews' father was the devil. Look at verse 38. Jesus said, I speak of what I've seen with my father. You will do what you've heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's telling you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, we weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For that's where I came from. And I'm here. I didn't come of my own accord. He sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. So not only were the Jews blind, they were deaf as well. They couldn't hear Christ's loving words of truth. In fact, Jesus says, you can't even bear to hear them. True words stab at a, at a hardened heart. They couldn't hear his words 
because his words came from God and they were listening to their father instead, the God of this world, the enemy of God. And the Jews were also blind to the fact that as they were listening to Satan, they were doing his will. And here's Satan's will, to keep people as far away from the truth as he could, to keep people apart from their creator, from their God. And this is what unknowingly the Jews were doing. They claimed that Abraham and God were both their fathers, but Abraham wasn't because he was a man of faith and a man of obedience. God wasn't their father because they wouldn't listen to his son. So Jesus lets them know, the devil's your father, and later they reply, no, you have a demon. Sort of like middle school. And they also say later, we weren't born of sexual immorality. And some people believe that they may have been referring here to Christ's controversial birth, that they would have known the story of Mary's betrothal and that Joseph was not Jesus's real father. Someone once said, always abuse your adversary if you can't answer their accusations. And that's what's going on here. Last on the list, they didn't know God. Look at verse 54. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I didn't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. He's saying, if I denied my union with God, I'd be a liar like you are, because they were lying about their relationship with God. Unlike Jesus, he says, you want glory. Unlike Jesus, they didn't keep God's word. So sitting before these pious Jews was a kind, sinless man who spoke the truths of God, who taught with astonishing authority, who performed incredible miracles no one had ever done, who lived and loved sacrificially, and they hated him. You can't know God without loving his son, whom he sent. It was time for another astounding announcement. Here it is. Jesus, because of his equality with God, existed from all eternity. Look at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, Jesus said. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. End of the discussion. We know, as we said, I am is the name for God. The Jews knew it too. They understood what he was saying here. They knew he was claiming to be God. He also says, you know, Abraham rejoiced in faith to see God's promise that he would one day see the Messiah bringing God's salvation, that one day all people on earth would be blessed by Jesus Christ. Abraham saw that day when he looked into the newborn face of his son Isaac, who was the beginning 
of the fulfillment of that promise. Right now, at that point, the Jews could choose to look into the face of Jesus and see the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham. Instead, he is surrounded not with rejoicing faces, but hateful faces. Clearly, when he claimed deity, he evoked a great crisis. He stirred up the hornet's nest. So the, the Jews stooped down into the dirt to pick up as many stones as they could so that they could kill the promised Messiah. When they should have been stooping down into the dirt to worship the Messiah that Abraham knew one day would come. He was rejected instead by them, the people of the promise that God made to Abraham. So as the light of the world, Jesus has done this exposing of the Jews' sin, and now he's going to give evidence of who he really is in chapter 9 by giving sight. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered him, It wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Isaiah predicted that one day God's Messiah would do things like heal people born blind, something that had never been done before because only God can do that. So Jesus is walking with his disciples, probably passes by one of the gates of the temple where beggars used to stay. There on the ground sat a ragged man who had been blind from birth, a helpless condition. And we should all know him because he's a relative of ours. Because, as we said, we are all spiritually blind from birth, and we are also in a helpless condition. So I want us to understand the rest of the story in light of everything Christ has done for us. As the disciples stared down at this blind man, they're confused. They believed if you have some illness, it's because you're a sinner. But this Man was born blind. Did he sin in the womb? Or was it his parents' sin? Jesus says neither. God's sovereignty, God's purposes are at work. And he explained that God could take him, he could display his glory in something that seems like a tragedy. So Jesus is also saying that while he is still on the earth, he's going to do God's will. He's going to do things like heal the blind. While it's still day, he would bring glory to God through these kind of miracles. And then he says, when the darkness comes, the darkness of his crucifixion, nothing good will be happening 
right then. So Jesus spits on the ground. He makes mud. He anoints the man's eyes. And when Jesus bent down and was working the clay in the ground, he was breaking the Sabbath. And that's what the Pharisees were about to focus on. Jesus gave the blind man opportunity to grow his faith, and he returned to Jesus with sight. It was faith that motivated the blind man to stand up from his resting place and obey the words of a total stranger. And it was faith that motivated the same man to return to the stranger seeing. And joy should have been everyone's response to this incredible miracle. Wow. In fact, we have a picture of it on a screen that I'd love for you to look at. I love it. And do you notice? Look first at the light, the light of the world and what he does in the world. And if you notice the people watching underneath his arm, behind them, we can tell they're in the darkness. That's the world that chooses not to believe in him. Jesus is light in a dark and unbelieving world. Okay, so instead of this joy, instead of everyone celebrating and being so excited, we see characteristics of willful unbelief. And here they are. Let's debate the truth. Let's deny the truth. Let's deflect the truth. The neighbor's response to this miracle was to debate the truth. They begin debating all the possibilities instead of accepting the evidence for itself. Ah, oh, this is the beggar. No, it can't be. It looks like him. It's not him. It is him. No, how could his eyes be open? On and on they went instead of celebrating. The Pharisees' response was to deny the truth. They argued Jesus couldn't be from God. He made clay on the Sabbath. How could a sinner do such a sign as this? The parents' response was to deflect the truth for their own protection. Don't ask us about it. Ask our son. He can tell you they were pushing the truth away and fear of what the Pharisees could do to them. Unlike them, when the Pharisees called the heel man to testify in his second interrogation, he speaks boldly about just the limited truth that he knows, even though before him he had this great pressure from the religious leaders, those who refused to believe. Look at verse 25. He's back in front of the Pharisees and he answers them, whether the man who healed me is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Go down to verse 29. And they say, we know God's spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man wasn't from God, he could do nothing. The Pharisees answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. 
This healed man could see that the greatness of this miracle proved that Jesus is from God and he didn't back down from it. He wouldn't debate, he didn't deny, he didn't deflect. And because of that, he was the first one thrown out of the synagogue for the cause of Christ. And Jesus searches for him. You know, when we face conflict and opposition and rejection, because of our faith, Jesus searches to help us as well. Look at verse 9, 35 in chapter 9. Jesus heard that they had cast out the healed man, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and he is speaking to you right now. And he said, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who don't see me may become blind. Those who not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard him the, these things and said to him, oh, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Jesus continued the man's healing by inviting him to believe in the identity of his healer. And I love how this man grew in his understanding. He told the neighbors, I was healed by a man named Jesus. He told the Pharisees, I was healed by a prophet. And then when he meets Christ face to face, he realizes, I was healed by the Son of Man. And he dropped to the ground, no longer to beg but to worship Jesus, blind no more. And the Pharisees who willfully ignored the miracle, willfully ignored the one who performed it, remained blind. They were guilty, trying to dim the light of the world. And so they remained blind. And the world is still blind. And it's a little frightening because the light of the world is not on the earth anymore. Where is he? You know, his plan is for us to be his light on this world. We are entrusted to hold those bright torches of light like they did at the Feast of Booths when they were celebrating how God was a light in the wilderness. We're to take God's light and go into the world. We've been entrusted to hold those torches. 1 Peter 2.9 tells us this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. When we abide in the light of the world, we can be a light in the world we can learn some things about abiding in Christ from the beggar. First, we have to recognize our blindness. The Pharisees didn't recognize their blindness. You know why? Their eyes were on themselves. They were all about their rules, their works, their own self-righteousness. The blind man recognized his blindness because his eyes were fixed on the words and the works of Jesus Christ. When we see ourselves 
as completely lost and ruined by sin. When we disclaim all righteousness of our own and we plead guilty before the Lord, like the blind man, we can stumble toward the pool of God's grace and be cleansed. Then we can say like the blind man did, one thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. Secondly, we open our eyes to his brightness. You know, unfortunately, we can know Jesus and still keep our eyes on the wrong things. Here's what I'd like to have seen if I were in this story that happened. I would have loved to see the healed beggar before he returned to Jesus. I would have loved to see him after his eyes were healed as he ran back to the temple. And all he could think of was, I'm going to see Jesus, the one who took me out of my darkness. And when he stood before Jesus and looked deeply into his face, he would have adored Jesus, his healer. And later when he understood who Jesus really was, he worshiped him. He probably dropped down on his knees into the dust to do that. That was a typical posture that he had been keeping day after day after day in the dust. But now he was a ragged beggar no more. He'd been rescued by Jesus. Why would he ever forget that? Why do we ever forget that? Why are we sometimes satisfied to remain beggars, wanting other things to sustain us? wanting other things for our own pleasures when Jesus has taken those ragged beggar clothes off of us? Why would we sit in the dust of the world when Jesus has given us abundant life? We have to abide in him, and that means we daily adore him for what he has done in our lives. We adore him above everything else. Thirdly, we obey him to increase our faith. You know, what if that blind man had decided, uh, I'm not going to obey this man. I'm not going to go wash in the pool. He would have been making a choice to stay in the dark. What if after we've received Jesus, we choose not to obey him? What kind of a light could we be in the world? Jesus said, a true disciple abides in my words. And he later said, if you really love me, you'll obey me. Like the beggar, every day we have a choice. We can, one, go where Jesus asks us to go, obey him. Two, get on our own selfish path. Or three, just stay where we are. Just sit in our resting place. But God will use every obedient act we do throughout the day to increase our faith because obeying God is a way of abiding in him to make our dim light shine brighter in this world. We do what Jesus says. And then while we are abiding in Jesus, I had two more thoughts. We look for ways to be his light in the world. And first of all, we care about other people's blindness. The disciples reminded me of me when they stood looking down on the, on the beggar before he was healed. 
It seems like instead of caring about his needs, they were trying to diagnose why he was in that position. Is it his sins? Is someone sinning against him? It was just another way of looking down on him. When I see people sometimes standing on street corners or when, you know, you pull up in your car or you're in a parking lot and people rush over to you and they're all wanting money, sometimes my first thought is to diagnose, how did you get into this position in the first place? Before I care about them. Spurgeon speaks into that and I love what he says. He says, once some cows got lost in a cornfield. And so the son asked the father, Father, how did the cows get in the cornfield? And his father said, never mind that. Let's go help them get out. Spurgeon says, postpone the inquiries of how people get into their condition. The great thing to see is how you and I can get evil out of this world and out of their lives how we can lift up the fallen and restore those who have gone astray. And then he says this, never imitate the man in the fable who saw a boy drowning in a lake. And then in there, the man got on a shore and began giving a lecture on the foolishness of swimming in deep water. To be a light in this world, We care about those who are blind and hurting without expecting them to see. And then finally, search for the searchers. One of my favorite parts of the blind man's story is how the beggar was searching for more answers about who Jesus was. And Jesus was searching for him to answer those questions in his heart. Let's be searchers of searchers like Jesus was. There are people everywhere we go that are confused, that are searching for truth. They're asking questions. They're reading books. They're all over social media with their opinions. Let's care enough to bring them out of the darkness. Let's listen to what they say. Let's pay attention. And then let's not just stop there. Let's provide some answers. We can tell our story without ridiculing theirs. They can't deny our story. And so we don't need to just make comments about blind people telling other people those people are really blind. What are we doing to tell them the answer? That Jesus came to give them light, to give them life. And let's never forget the wonder, the marvel, the amazement of that wonderful, unbelievable gift of God in our lives that by God's grace, you and I are blind no more. Let's pray. Father, we give you all praise and glory. We are so thankful for your love how you search for us, how you have good gifts for us. May we have the boldness to be your light in this world and the wisdom to know how to do it well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.